Death brings with it a great sense of clarity. A sense of clarity as to what's important and what's not. Now obviously that's hard to say from our own experience, uh, maybe only if we've been through a, a near-death experience. But I'm sure we, we've seen it in the lives of others. That once, what once mattered so much to them suddenly doesn't matter very much at all in the face of death. We've probably also personally known a sense of the clarity that death brings when a loved one has died. Perhaps you've lost a loved one and, and you've been there and it's all happened and, and you've come out of, come out of the house uh, or, or, the, or the hospital where, where they died uh, and people around you have no idea of the significance of what has just happened. Oh, maybe you have to go to to a shop and 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 pick something up, uh, and what people are talking about around you seems seems so completely inane and trivial. A week before it, it wouldn't have bothered you, but someone you love has died, uh, and suddenly uh, seeing people going about their business uh, as normal as if nothing significant has happened can get to you. Uh, maybe you even hear people debating something really insignificant and you, you feel like going up and saying to them, it just doesn't matter. In the face of death, something that, that probably doesn't matter anyway, it really doesn't matter. Because death brings with it a sense of clarity. It certainly did for the Apostle Peter. Uh, and so in this section of the letter, in light of his own coming death, uh, Peter urges his readers to put into practice the list of virtues that we looked at last Lord's Day evening. So these verses are nothing less than a dying pastor's rallying call. And we're going to look at this, this rallying call under two headings this evening. Uh, firstly, we're going to see Peter's urgency in giving this call. Uh, and then we're going to see our urgent need to listen. So firstly, tonight, the dying pastor's urgent call. Death, as we've said, brings a sense of, of clarity and it also brings a sense of urgency. Peter is probably in his 60s as he writes this letter. At a time when life expectancy was a lot shorter than it is today, but he also writes as someone who knows that he isn't going to experience a natural death. Old age wasn't going to get to Peter because he knew that persecutors were going to get there first. Uh, and he knew, knew that not just because he had a sense of foreboding or, or not because he had a sense of foreboding, but because Jesus had specifically told him. Do you remember the words of the Lord Jesus to Peter after his resurrection? Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And then John adds the comment in chapter one of his gospel. This he said to show by what kind of death he, that is Peter, was to glorify God. So Peter isn't going to die a natural death. He's going to be put to death by the hands of others. Uh, there, there is a, a, a story, not, not very much evidence for it, that, that Peter, at his own request, was crucified upside down. Um, 
how much weight, weight to that we give that? Probably not too much, but, but we do know uh, that, that his death uh, would be at the hands of others. And as Peter writes this second letter, he knows that that day can't be too far away. He says in verses 13 and 14, I think it right as long as, in, as I am in the body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. Literally, he talks there about his body as a tent, uh, as the Apostle Paul does elsewhere. Uh, and it's not a great image of the fact that, that our bodies are, are, just, are just a tent, that, that the real us will keep going. Uh, boys and girls, we, we, we had somebody, uh, or we, had, we had people camping in our garden uh, recently. Uh, we, we, had, we, we had some friends camping in our garden recently. But if you go there now, their, their, tent, their tents aren't there. But, but does, that, does that mean they're gone? No, they're, they're not gone. They're just not in their tents anymore. And that's, that's what it's like when, when, we, when, when someone that we love dies. They're, they're not gone. Uh, they're, 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 they're no longer in their bodies, but they, they are in heaven. They haven't, they haven't stopped to exist just because the, the tent isn't there. They're still they're, they're still alive they're just not with us they're, they're they're experiencing that new life in heaven so peter knows peter knows his time is short uh, some people might get a terminal diagnosis and have a, a bucket list of things they want to uh, do or experience before they die they die but for peter his impending death makes the priority of reminding these christians of their calling even greater Here's a man who isn't coasting in his final years. The shortness of the time doesn't lead to him taking the foot off the gas, uh, but rather it gives him a greater sense of urgency. As something to pray for, for your pastors, that, uh, that as time goes on, they wouldn't take their foot off the gas, but have an even greater urgency. Uh, the, the, the theme of Second Peter is about how we're to live in light of the fact that the end of the world is coming. Uh, but the same principle also applies to our own upcoming deaths. Uh, because we don't know which will come first, whether Christ will return first or whether he'll call us home first. But, but whether it's his return or our home calling, we need to be ready for it. Uh, just like, like a woman who's pregnant needs to be ready for the moment things start happening. You know, we need to live with that sense of readiness. And so in verse 12 here, Peter says that he intends always to remind them of these qualities. These, uh, these qualities that he's listed in verses 5 through 7. And as Peter says that he wants to remind his readers of these qualities, let's, let's remind ourselves of them. Uh, because we are uh, Peter's readers after all. Uh, so, so verse 5 he said, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue meaning moral excellence. It means to be like the God who has called us to his own glory and excellence. Then the virtue would add knowledge. Remember how Peter bookends this letter. He, he begins it and ends it by talking about the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ and of the need to grow in that knowledge. To knowledge would add self-control, 
uh, submission to God and surrender to the Holy Spirit. And then steadfastness, quiet stickability, especially in the face of difficulty. Like, like William Carey, who said that his only particular ability was the ability to plod. Uh, and I remind you, as I reminded you last Lord's Day evening, you may not think that you can do much, but we can all plod. And the steadfastness would add godliness. Loving the Lord our God with our heart, soul, strength and mind. Then brotherly affection, a a particular love for God's people simply because they're Christians. And finally love. A love for others that reflects the self-sacrificial love of Christ for us. It wasn't that these believers Peter was writing to didn't know these things it wasn't that they were new to them and it wasn't even that they knew them but they weren't living them out Uh, peter says in verse 12 though you know them and are established in the truth that you have but such is the pull of the world the flesh and the devil uh, that we continually need these things set before us not as abstract impersonal virtues but as characteristics of our Saviour, the one who demonstrated complete moral excellence at all times, the one who never lost his self-control and perfectly submitted to his Father's will, the one who was steadfast to the end without wavering, in spite of all, all the pressure not to, the one who loved his God and Father with all his heart, soul, strength and mind, And the one who loved his sheep so much that he gave up his life for them. And so as long as he's alive, Peter wants to remind his readers of these things. So that verse 15, after his departure, they might be able at any time to recall them. What what a great goal that is to have. Peter is striving that so by God's grace, when he's gone, he'll leave behind people of strong faith. Uh, And don't we want that for for those whose lives God has used us in? Whether God has used us as spiritual midwives to to bring people to faith in the first place, or whether he's enabled us to have an impact on their spiritual growth, whether through through teaching them uh, Sabbath school or or meeting up with them or just being a a Christian influence on them and and encouraging them each week or, or, or making sure that they're at church each week. Surely our our great desire is that the stability of their faith isn't dependent on us. That after our departure that they would keep growing as Christians and in turn be able to disciple others. How sad it is, how how tragic it is when a minister leaves a congregation and people just stop coming to church. Was their faith so tied to a man that, that once he goes they go? No minister wants that to happen. Or how sad it is when children attend church as long as their parents are alive, but once their parents are gone, they stop. And it becomes clear that they were never really standing on their own two feet spiritually. Peter doesn't want that to be the case with these Gentile Christians. Uh, 
And so he's doing what he can now under God while he's still alive to prepare them for when he's gone. Just as Paul tried to prepare the Ephesian elders in Acts 20 for what would happen after his departure, so Peter is doing the same thing here. These men, these apostles, they're looking to the future. They're looking to a time when they're not around. And, and their big concern isn't how they're remembered. But it's, it's that Christ would be seen in those that they leave behind. What's coming in the future, it must affect how we live now. And it should affect the way we try and influence others as well. Peter left behind him two books of the Bible. They were part of his legacy under God. History tells us that he had a strong impact on a third book of the Bible in that Mark's gospel is meant to be based on Peter's preaching. Now most of us aren't going to leave any books behind, never mind books that will be read by Christians all over the world in every generation but I came across a, a lovely quote from the Covenanter Alexander Nisbet this week. He, he said, Every Christian ought to endeavour to leave behind some seeds of saving knowledge sown in the hearts of those with whom they converse. Isn't that a great picture? We, we sow seeds. And perhaps that, that, that's, that's all we do in our lives. And we don't see the fruit of them. But perhaps after we're gone, someone else will water them and God will give the growth. And Nisbet says at the very least, we can all leave behind the savoury remembrance of humble and holy lives, which may do as good after our deaths as many volumes of books. So that's a, a, a challenge for us this evening, but, but it's also, I trust, an encouragement. Will we leave behind the savoury remembrance of humble and holy lives? We may not be able to, to leave behind much in terms of the world's possessions. Uh, perhaps we, we wish we, we, we could leave more behind for those coming after. But, but we can all do this. We can all leave behind the, the savour of a holy and a humble life. And if we do that, who knows how much good God might do with it. So, so firstly tonight, the dying pastor's urgent call. But then secondly, the need to listen. The need to listen. Peter here has, has a sense of urgency that, is, that his first readers would listen. And our need to listen today is no less urgent than theirs. And under this second point we have three reasons why we need to urgently listen to Peter's words. And to make sure that these seven virtues are being displayed in our lives. So, so three reasons why we need to pursue these things. Uh, and the first reason is there in verse 8. Uh, namely that these qualities will stop us being ineffective and unfruitful. These qualities will stop us being ineffective and unfruitful. Uh, 
Surely none of us would want to be described as ineffective and unfruitful. Uh, I don't think anybody would want to be uh, described as that, whether in our our, our work life, our our home life, our Christian life. uh, Who would want to be known as, well, well, that person, they they achieve nothing, all they do, do, it's just, it's ineffective, it's unfruitful. Uh, Nobody wants to have that legacy. Uh, we we don't want to be like like those like the, like the king of Israel who who departed with no one's regret, and yet what Peter is saying here is actually worse than we might think. Because what is it to be unfruitful? What do you call a tree that doesn't bear fruit? Dead. What is the biblical category for a Christian who doesn't bear fruit? There isn't one. A Christian who doesn't bear fruit isn't a Christian according to the New Testament. As John the Baptist put it, every tree that does not bear bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As Jesus said, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he, that is the Father, takes away. So what's at stake here if these qualities aren't seen in us? It is nothing less than our salvation. Not that doing these things saves us, of course not, but they are the fruit of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. Unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, as it's put here, it means that that someone has a knowledge of Jesus that is useless because it doesn't bear fruit. And so it's not a true knowledge at all. A knowledge of Jesus that doesn't bear fruit is not a true knowledge. I'm sure none of us would want that to be the case for us. So how do we ensure that it isn't? Well, by making sure that by God's grace, these qualities are ours and are increasing. So that's the the first reason we're to pursue these things. And in a sense, it's a a, a negative reason in the sense of trying to avoid a negative outcome. Peter is encouraging us to pursue pursue these qualities in order to avoid the negative outcome of turning out not to be a true believer. But then he gives us another reason to pursue these things. And this time, it's it's a positive reason for doing so. So so the second reason uh, that that we urgently need to listen to Peter is that these qualities will help confirm your calling and election. These qualities will help confirm your calling and election. Uh, Words taken from verse 10. Uh, This this second point will be be slightly longer, uh, but then, then the third one, the final one, will be very brief. Verse 10 is probably one of the most familiar verses in 2 Peter. Uh, This exhortation that we're to make our calling and election sure. But although it's a well-known verse, people wonder, well well, here I'm told to make my calling and election sure, uh, but, but how can I do that? But if we read verse 10 in context of of the chapter, it comes in. And if we read the second half of the verse, then it's obvious how we're to do this. How do we make our calling and election sure? Well, the verse goes on by practicing these qualities. 
Now perhaps we need to back up here a little because some of you may still be wondering about the word election. It's a word we hear a lot about in the news in the sense of voting for someone. We're familiar with elections in that sense. But what is election in the Bible? Because the election Peter's talking about here is obviously something very different. And to sum it up, election in the Bible means God's choice before the creation of the world to save a certain number of people for himself. I'll give you that again. Election means God's choice or his choosing before the creation of the world to save a certain number of people for himself. The word elect or election, it just means chosen. God's people are described as the elect by Jesus in the Gospels. For example, when he says, will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? We might say, will God not give justice to his people? Uh, and you could say that, but Jesus says, will not give God give justice to his elect? The Apostle Peter describes Christians as God's elect. Uh, probably most, most well known in Romans chapter 8. Who shall bring any charge against who? Uh, against God's elect. And, and here... Uh, Peter urges the Christians he's writing to to make their calling and election sure. And perhaps you wonder, well, well how, how can we do that? Surely God has already chosen who he's chosen and we can't change that. Well, that, well that's, that's true. But making your calling and election sure means to demonstrate by your life that you really are called. Not primarily for the sake of other people, but for your own sake. For, for your own sake. Remember, this is, this is a positive reason to pursue these, these qualities. I'm going to give you three words now. And when I say them, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? What's the first thing that comes into your mind when I say the words heaven on earth? Heaven on earth. What, what, what do you picture? Sunbathing by a pool. Not having to work. Fine dining. Family harmony. Well heaven on earth is actually the title of a little book by the Puritan Thomas Brooks. And that book is on the topic of assurance. Assurance meaning being sure that we're Christians. Brooks believed that while all Christians will enjoy a heaven when they leave this earth, that some of them will also enjoy a heaven here on earth. And by, by that he meant assurance. And so he wrote this book to try and help as many of God's people as possible to try and experience heaven on earth. To help them reach the point of being sure that they really are Christians. That is part of a, a pastor's job as well to help those who are God's people experience that heaven on earth because not all true Christians have assurance someone can be absolutely 100% certainly going to heaven when they die and, and yet they only have 10% confidence that they are and although that lack of confidence doesn't affect where they're going, their, their 10% confidence can't, fact, can't, can't affect the fact that in God's eyes there's 100% certainty that they're going to heaven. It can't affect the outcome, but, but it, it does affect uh, their sense of peace in this life. 
And if you've experienced that, you know how deeply troubling a thing that it is. But God wants you to have assurance. God wants you to have assurance. And he's telling us here through Peter that 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 is possible. Peter says, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. So, So this isn't just something for some Christians, but it's for every Christian. Now, the way that we're to do that, it isn't solely to to look into our lives and try and see fruit. In fact, doing that can easily lead us to despair. Robert Murray McShane wisely advised, for every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. Our assurance is rooted in the promises of God. Our assurance is rooted in the promises of God. Our confession of faith, which sums up what we believe as a, as a church, uh, which the Shorter Catechism is, is a summary of, our confession of faith has a whole chapter about assurance. If we were writing a confession of faith today, I, I wonder would we even mention it. Uh, I, I don't think we'd give it a chapter. But they were writing in the context where the Catholic Church had declared at the Council of Trent that if anyone said they had assurance that unless they had been granted it by a special revelation from God that they were to be counted as under God's curse. So so to claim that you had certainty of heaven was was considered uh, by by that official pronouncement of Catholicism to to be so presumptuous that anyone making that claim was accursed. So if I were, were to ask you tonight if you're certain of heaven and you were to say yes, according to the, the, the still official teaching of Roman Catholicism, you're under God's curse. And so in light of that, it was very important for those who wrote the Confession of Faith to spell out exactly what we do and don't believe about assurance. You know, sometimes people ask, we're talking about doing the shorter catechism. Is a catechism not a Catholic thing? Well, in a sense, you could say that a catechism, it helps, helps us define why we're not Roman Catholic. It helps us, it helps show where we, we differ from the teachings of Rome. So the confession is this chapter in assurance. And firstly, it says that, that assurance is possible. You know, after all, if God tells us to make our calling an election, sure, it must be possible. And then the confession of faith goes on to say that certainty about whether we're going to heaven is founded upon the divine truth of the promises of salvation. So, so they talk about assurance. Number one, they talk about God's divine promises. Sometimes we look at our lives and we're really not very sure, but, but we look at God's promises and we are sure of God's promises. And so if we assume that that assurance is about introspection, then we've missed that that first and foremost it's about uh, looking out and up to God's promises rather than than trying to look into ourselves. But the confession does go on to, to, to make the point that God's promises about salvation are made to people who are living in a certain way. And one of the biblical references they point to is 2 Peter chapter 1. So living out these seven qualities here in verses 5 through 7 
are vitally important for our own assurance of salvation. Living them out is important that, that even if we can't see them in our lives, others can. And being part of a church community means that if others don't see them in our lives, then hopefully they will be concerned enough to say something about it. Having the, these fruit in our lives, it, hopefully, by God's grace, we will be able to see them in our lives, but, but for the times that we don't, others will be able to see them too. So the second reason to pursue these things is that these qualities will help you confirm your calling and election. They will help give you assurance that you really are a child of God. But then thirdly uh, and finally, uh, we have an urgent need to listen to Peter and make sure these qualities are seen in our lives because these qualities will provide you an entrance into the kingdom. These qualities will provide you an entrance into the kingdom. Verse 11. Now if your spiritual eyebrows are raised here, uh, I, I know where you're coming from. Verse 11. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. And clearly we know from the rest of the Bible that that can't be saying that these things earn us an entrance into heaven. If you get to a verse in the Bible and you think, well, this contradicts the whole rest of the Bible, don't throw out the whole rest of the Bible because of how you're understanding that one verse. Try and understand that one verse in light of the whole rest of the Bible. So it can't be saying that, that, that doing these things earns us an entrance into heaven but I think it's referring back to the previous verse and talking about assurance. For in this way, for if we have this assurance, then it's like we've entered heaven already. The entrance is still provided for us in the words of the verse. It's not something that we earn. But living out these virtues is evidence that new life has already begun in us. Uh, it may, may well tie into the, to the end of verse 10 as well. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. I, I, I don't think it means that we'll never stumble. As a Christian, uh, we, we, we sang in the steps of a good man, that though he fall, he, he will not be cast down. Uh, the book of Micah says, though I fall, yet I shall rise. Uh, I think this, this is talking at the end of verse 10 about, about falling as in a permanent fall away from grace, a fall away from God. But if we are... If we are, uh, by his grace, pursuing these qualities, if his spirit is at work in our lives, we will never finally fall. Uh, and because we won't finally fall, the, the entrance to heaven remains open for us. So, so three different reasons to pursue these things. But ultimately, it, they all add up to the same thing. We need to do these things because if not, we're not ready for Jesus to come back because our faith isn't real. It's all, it's all about assurance of salvation. It's all about the genuineness of our faith. Uh, and so again this week, uh, as I encouraged you last Lord's Day evening, uh, I'd encourage you to take one of these seven virtues every day this week to meditate on. 
maybe like me, you, you started doing it last week uh, uh, and tailed off towards the end of the week. Uh, if so, you can start at the end of the list and work backwards, uh, and that way you'll, you'll make sure and not miss any. But here's an apostle who with his dying breath wants to hammer these words into our hearts. Here are our words which God's Holy Spirit has preserved for us for 2,000 years and which he's, he's brought you to hear tonight. They're not things that we have the option of taking or leaving. Uh, meditate on these things this week. And as we close tonight, I want us to, to do so with a focus on the one who perfectly displayed these seven fruit of the Spirit, uh, as we could call them. Peter is here labouring to do good to people after his departure, which interestingly he, he literally calls his exodus in verse 15, his exodus. The same word is used to describe uh, what they're talking about when Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration. They were talking about Jesus' exodus, Jesus' departure. Peter wanted to, to live and write in such a way that it would do good to his readers after his death. But Jesus does even more for us because his very death gives us life. And now uh, as new creatures in Christ through his death, as new men and women, boys and girls, we are now able to make every effort to supplement our faith with virtue or excellence and excellence with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love knowing that if these qualities are ours and are increasing they keep us from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, let's sing about the, the heaven on earth that we have through assurance from Psalm 63. Psalm number 63, and we'll sing verse 3 to the end, uh, to the tune Jackson 102. Psalm 63, page number at the bottom is 128. Psalm 63, verse 3 to the end. In verse 3, the true believer values God's grace more than life. And in verse 4, they are well satisfied with the rich, abundant food of knowing God. And if we were, are not well satisfied with that on earth, we would not be well satisfied with that in heaven. Uh, but if we are well satisfied by the knowledge of him here and now, what, what, a, uh, what, what a sign it is that we are on the road to heaven. And so in verse 5, the remembrance of God brings us delight because we know that we're right with him and we know that he's our loving heavenly father. By God's grace, may these words, which could all be perfectly said of the Lord Jesus, may they be seen more and more in each one of us as his people. So Psalm 63, three to the end, we'll stand and sing praise. <laughs> 